This is Seth Essenson. I am sitting here on a day that it could rain. I don't know if there's any in the forecast or not. I'm down by the South Dakota border in Forbes, North Dakota, and Mr. Daryl Shrum. This is another episode of NDFB Straight Talk, and we're sitting here talking about an incident that happened, I believe, has it been been a couple years ago already? Uh, yes. It happened in 2016, I believe. 2016, so it's been quite a few years. And I remember some stories about it, I think, in, in the news. I think it probably circulated in the paper a little bit. Oh, yeah. It's an issue that deals directly with, with private property rights, and it is something that, as an organization, North Dakota Farm Bureau does take very seriously. It uh, It's one of the three basic tenets upon which our organization was founded. So something that we take very seriously as an organization and we've had a couple different pieces of legislation introduced, both, I believe, in the House, dealing specifically with the civil forfeiture topic. I think uh, before we dive into that, Daryl, if, you, if you'd be so kind, tell us a little bit about the city of Forbes. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you do. And, and I think we can just dive right into the story from there. I am from Forbes. i uh, got my own little business. I do construction work. I've been in business since 95 on my own and run mostly heavy equipment and i happened to run across a new holland payloader was it for sale privately daryl it was on ebay it was on ebay yes so it was listed on ebay it was on eBay. it was verified on on ebay yes um nothing nothing strange to the deal certainly right. they yeah get, they got them on there all the time and uh it was priced reasonable so i did some checking on it and it needed a quite a little bit of work it needed a, a lot of work actually and i knew that and I do all my own mechanic work. Uh-huh. Uh, we do we fix everything ourselves, so I figured well. Nothing wrong with looking for a deal and it's something you can fix, right? That I do it all the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I I went down and I checked it out, looked at it, and then uh, a couple of days later I decided I would go after it and buy it and stuff and then it turned out to be uh not so good deal after all, but I mean the loader was all right. I long, mean long story short, it wasn't it was it was a pretty painful experience for you. Well, you look back now it's what do you do, you know? It, right. uh, it turned out okay afterwards. It just took two years to get it straightened out. Let's just rewind. You checked out the loader. Where where was it for sale at? In Iowa. It was out of Iowa. Out of Iowa. Uh-huh. So you checked it out. Everything seemed good? Yep. Went down, and uh, I looked at the loader, and I met with the guy. I came back, and I did some more research on it, and I I did some checking with my insurance company uh, and uh, told them to run this serial number. I had the serial number off of it. I said, can you run the serial number and make sure there's nothing, no liens or nothing against it, make sure it's it's a good deal. And I did the same thing with the RDO out of Fargo, the guy I always buy equipment from, Jim Hill. And he did the same thing, and everything came back. It was a clear loader. Checked out. Checked out. No liens against it? No liens. Everything was good on it, so... uh, after that, then I had purchased it and went down and picked it up and started fixing on it. And, uh, oh, I believe this was in, it's been so long ago. I believe it was like in January when I got it, somewhere around there. And then in May, I believe by the time I had it all, I had to put a bunch of work, ton of work into it. Sure. Radiators. And I knew when I bought it, that, that's uh, tires, right. uh, transmission, uh, hoses, and just, it needed a lot of work. So not, just, not just part money. I mean, you had some elbow grease in right, this old girl, right, too. Right, So that's what I did. And then once I got it going, and then uh, they came and took it away. Somebody showed up and took your took your payloader. Right. Here you are. You're sitting out in front of the shop. We're, Actually, we're I, wasn't, shop. I wasn't here when it happened. I was up at Medora picking up another payloader. I'll be dang. Uh, the day it went down. Uh, so 
I was no notification, no nothing. Nothing, not a thing. Not even so much as a phone call. Nothing. Who came and how were you notified and what did that process look like? BCI is guys that came. So BCI is, if I'm not mistaken, it's it's Bureau of Criminal Investigation. Is that correct? Yeah, technically that's what it is. <clears throat> an, an arm of, of the executive branch, is, is is that correct? I believe so, it's yes. Basically, uh, the state state law enforcement agency, right. BCI. Yeah. Uh, so they came, no no notification. None whatsoever. They came and then uh, the neighbor to my north here, they were outside when they pulled up and they asked them if they knew where I was and they said, no, he's on the road, but I got his phone number, you can call him. Not, they didn't want to do that until... They had my door knocked down and were loading it. Then they did call me then. So when you say they had your door knocked down. Yeah, they knocked my door in to get into my shop. They knocked it in? Yes. I still on there. I can show you where they hit it with it. To get into your shop? Yeah. And then they unhooked the surveillance cameras. I got surveillance cameras in there. Yeah, that was the first thing they did. They disabled them. Did they ever tell you why they did that? No. No explanation whatsoever? No explanation at all. Wow. Just so we're clear on this, um, were you a part of a criminal investigation at that point, or did, no. they, have, did they have a warrant? I mean, they had a they, they had a warrant. Yes, they they did have a warrant. Yeah, the warrant uh-huh. said to seize the property and bring it back to Dickey County. Is what they were supposed to bring it back to the county shed, mm-hmm. but it, that never happened. They loaded it on a truck. They had a truck out of Aberdeen come up, meet them at the same time. They loaded it on a truck and headed south. That's the last we've seen of it. You'd sustain damage to your property. They'd, they'd knock your door down. They hadn't called you and said, hey, did you buy this payloader? No. Nothing? No. Okay. So how did you find out that uh, BCI, Bureau of Criminal Investigation, showed up, knocked in your door, took a payloader? Disabled the cameras. Dis- disabled your surveillance cameras. Yes. Hired a trucking company, you said, out, yep. of, out of Aberdeen, Aberdeen yep. to take your payloader away. Yeah. Where are they taking it to? They took it to his place first, and then from there... Somebody else loaded up and they lost it. They lost it. <laughs> yeah, they literally lost it. I'm serious. It's uh, it's in the court records. They lost it. They don't know what happened to it. At, at that point, they have no idea. It, it just it just up and up and vanished from this guy, this trucker that they hired in Aberdeen. Somebody from- else came and picked it up from his yard. Okay. And supposedly it was supposed to go to Mexico. So at this point, I'll, I'll just back up for a minute. I. Uh, we're in the middle of calving season, so you have to you have to forgive me. I'm a little bit sleep deprived. You show back up, your door's knocked in, your your surveillance cameras are, are monkeyed with, and um, neighbors tell you some guy showed up and took it. They didn't want to talk to you. They just knocked your door in and disabled you. After, after they had it, after they had it loaded and stuff, they need this BCI guy uh-huh. called me and, and said it's a stolen loader. Okay, so he said you get you got a stolen loader. Yeah, and he said to that. It's not stolen. I paid for it. That's what I said. I, I talked to my insurance agent, and they, they told me that it was it was cleared and checked in with RDO, and they said I was good to go. So I paid for it. I didn't steal it. What's right. going on here? 45 days after I had purchased it is when it finally showed up that it was stolen. 45 days? Yes. Okay. So it was not reported stolen, and I bought it 45 days afterwards right. is when it showed up. I myself think it was an inside insurance fraud deal the way it turned out so where do we go from here they, they notify you they said you got a stolen payloader he said i'd steal it i paid good money for that sucker you know yeah more than i should i got a well, bunch of elbow well, grease that, in it and, and that a bunch was, of parts now too so that was bci's deal said you didn't pay enough that loader's worth more 
uh, no, it wasn't. It needed some partisans, some, right? Some some wrench time. Yeah. Did you seek some legal advice? Yes, you, yeah. I uh, immediately got a hold of a uh, Vogel Law out of Fargo and uh, got to vision with them, and they got emergency court held right away within two days or whatever, and uh, the BCI was told to bring that payloader back to North Dakota, and they they lost it. Well, they knew where it was at then, yet, and they said. Looked right at the judge and said, I don't think that's going to happen. And it didn't. Started all kinds of court hearings and stuff from there. It took like two years or whatever. So what, what transpired during that two-year period? What sort of resolution did we, did we well, come to we here? Well, actually, when when we first started, at first at very first, all, all we wanted was just what I had in the payloader. That's all I wanted back. Just my money that I had invested in the payloader. As far, as, far as the parts? Yes. Or just, just the parts. parts not even like, that, yep. what, the money that I... That you'd put into that it, I'd the time, the time and money that you'd not put even, into not it, even, not even the purchase price. No, the purchase price and yep. my parts and stuff. Right. What I actually had in that loader is what I wanted back. And they they laughed at me. They laughed at you. Yeah, they said it wasn't my loader. So we bought it. <laughs> Cancel check and everything. So you were never charged criminally. Uh, obviously, no. you bought it unknowingly stolen. It wasn't um, stolen when I bought it. Right. It, w- it was reported 45 days afterwards. Yes. Right. Excuse me. What type of resolution throughout this, this two-year period did it come to? The final deal afterwards was, uh, well, we went to court and then we won. Of course, we were awarded a settlement and then the state appealed it, you know, of course, mm-hmm. and you know what happens when they do that. So then we took it to federal court. We applied for federal court and then it was accepted in federal court and then Basically, the same day it was accepted in federal court, then they called and wanted to uh, make a settlement. They did? Yeah. So that's ultimately what ended up happening. Ended up making, they made a settlement, the state made a settlement with me, and then uh, the trucking company made a settlement with, the one in Aberdeen made a settlement with me, and the other company that loaded it, loaded it down there in Aberdeen, they made a settlement with me, and then the guy that I bought it from made a settlement with me. They should never went that far. They should right. The day, the day they did it, when we went to court, they should have just admitted they were wrong and just paid the 30000 and been all over with. But by the time it was all done, it was 90 some thousand that they ended up paying me. Right. Pretty expensive loader at that point. Yeah. Well, attorney fees. I guess when you live your life in six-minute increments, they get pretty expensive, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Any revelations that you that you came to throughout this whole process? Can't fight City Hall comes to my mind right well, off the top of my head. Well, you know. And once they found out I wasn't going to give up, you know, I, I told my attorney, I ain't going to give up. I did nothing wrong. And that's what he said, too. He uh-huh. said, we'll fight this till the end. And like I said, once they went to federal court, they knew they didn't have a chance then. Do you find it strange that somebody can come onto your property uh, unannounced, break down your door, disable your security systems? And steal your property. Take take your property. And we're, we're talking about law enforcement, yes. mind you. You haven't even been accused of a crime, let alone charged with a crime. Right. So essentially, if I'm understanding civil forfeiture correctly, the property itself, in essence, is almost being charged with the crime, but it's your property and they're taking it with no due process. Right. Did I explain that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, if you look up the case, <laughs> it's kind of funny because it's, it's called... It's the case is a two thirty New Holland payloader case. That's that's what it's listed the as. State of North Dakota versus two thirty New Holland. <laughs> yeah, you need to look it up. Yeah. Essentially, they're treating this property as as a defendant. 
Yeah. It seems strange. I mean, it's it's something that I wasn't real aware of. Um, I hadn't really been brought to my attention too much. Um, the little bit that I had heard about it. And what I want to also say is in the defense of the state's attorney in Dickey County, he told these guys, just leave that payloader where it's at because we don't know who owns it. And they wouldn't listen to him. Right. And his back and did it. So it wasn't it wasn't local government that no. that did this to you. No. It was it was, yeah. it was a, essentially it was a, the state BCI. Well, yeah, state BCI and, and and some you know local people were involved in it too. You right. know, but uh, the state's attorney himself said just leave that is until we figure <clears throat> out who owns that payloader, and they wouldn't do it. A lot of heartache over over a loader. A lot of a lot of state taxpayer dollars. A lot of exactly. a lot of your dollars. Just a, a strange deal altogether. Would encourage folks. To take a look at this issue, to study it, it it pertains to your private property rights. That payloader, by by definition, means that you paid for it and you had a bill of sale was your your property. You'd done your due diligence. That's right. And um, there's a, a couple of different bills that were introduced in the legislature, both, I believe, in, in the House. One of them remaining, I believe it's House Bill 1480 that, that seeks to amend some of the code currently that's going on and bring about some transparency and some accountability. Um, throughout some of that process. I know there are definitely people out there that, that believe that civil forfeiture for the very sake of private property rights should be ended and that the only property that should be forfeited would be due to a criminal conviction. Would you tend to agree with that philosophy? Yeah, yeah. What I have a problem with is if it wasn't my loaders, whose was it? Why did, why did they lose it? Where's it at? Who, who ended up with it? They don't know where it's at. Ended up in, was that the story? So they're going to end up in Mexico? Last we found out, it was sitting in uh, Hugo, Mexico at the porter waiting to go into Mexico. She gone. Yeah. Old New Holland's gone. Yeah. Headed to Mexico. Yeah. And even even my attorney talked to the state of North Dakota because I would have went down and got it, you know. And they would, no, no. So the state just wouldn't work with my wow. attorney at all. Wow. Well, this has been one of the most interesting stories I think I've ever heard. It was well worth the uh, the trip down here. I got to see the South Dakota border thanks to uh, Google Maps. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Daryl. Please stick around for Pete's one-minute pause, followed by Emery's discussion with Representative Rick Becker on this, this very topic um, relating to civil forfeiture and some of the legislation that he's introduced and still supporting in the legislature today. Thanks again for your time, sir. It's uh, sure nice North Dakota weather, but um, who wouldn't want to be a payloader sitting on a beach in Mexico? (laughs) I'd like to talk today about the role of lobbyists in our legislative process. Why do we have lobbyists? Well, the short answer is that it's part of our Constitution. The First Amendment guarantees us the right to petition our government for a redress of grievances. That means that citizens can get engaged publicly, either as individuals or by banding together in an organization such as Farm Bureau to express their views on any public question, any public policy issues. So lobbyists represent individuals or groups of people in a professional capacity in all the fields of public policy, whether it's local, state, or national. What a lobbyist relies upon is his or her professional integrity when representing the clients or organizational members. Unfortunately, some people have a negative impression of lobbyists, and maybe some of that negativity is earned. 
But overwhelmingly, lobbyists represent their clients or their members in an honest and honorable way. Because they have to. A bad reputation for dishonesty would kill a lobbyist's professional career. Lobbyists are folks just like you and me that represent either a business or an individual or a group of clients in an organization such as Farm Bureau to make sure that our voice is heard collectively during the legislative process. This has been Pete's One Minute Pause. Good afternoon. This is Emery Melhoff, your North Dakota public policy liaison. And I'm sitting here in the Bismarck office and I'm visiting with Representative Rick Becker. Rick Becker is from District 7 and he has served in the legislature, I believe, since. Oh, can you remind us, Representative? Yeah, I was elected in 2012. So the 2013 was my first session. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you live here in Bismarck? Yes, I do. I'm originally from Mandan and um, currently living in Bismarck. Have been since I came back uh, to the state. Uh, I had to leave for training. Uh, my regular job is a plastic surgeon. I've been I came back to practice in December of 1997. Wow. So it's been a while. Um, and so, yeah, that's my primary job. I st- got interested in politics and got into the legislature after redistricting in 2010. Hmm. Um, you know, they do that in 11, and then suddenly that it was a new district for the Bismarck area. So I took took that opportunity. With your practice, then, do you put that on hold during the legislative cycle, or how does that work? Just Because there's a lot of people that wonder, how do I balance being mm-hmm. interested in politics and serving as a public servant and um, my business? So how do you balance that? Right. It, it, does, it is a, a balancing act, and it is you know, really a sacrifice. I mean, it's one mm-hmm. that, that I and others willingly make. We're happy to do it, happy to do it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be there. But it is clearly a difficulty in in balancing. And so what I've learned now, this being my fifth session, it's worked out pretty well where I will do surgeries on Saturdays and I hold in the evening a weekly clinic. And so then that way, I'm not taking anything away from my obligations as a legislator, but I'm still able to keep a little bit of the business going throughout. So instead of a, instead of a 100% drop, it's a you know, a 70% drop. And so in that way, it's a reasonable, a reasonable give and take, I think. Well, today we're talking about civil asset forfeiture. And civil asset forfeiture is something that North Dakota Farm Bureau has had policy on for um, a really long time. It's one of our longstanding policies that we believe that civil asset forfeiture should be eliminated in North Dakota. Um, But before we get there, let's just talk a little bit about what civil asset forfeiture is. Um, Could you just describe for us a little bit um, what it is and how the process works? Absolutely. I, I, I was not aware of what civil asset forfeiture was until I think it was probably 2016. And uh, I I was shocked. I could not believe that this was actually a thing. So civil asset forfeiture, I guess the best way is is to bring up an example. So if a person is driving down the road, they get stopped by law enforcement. And let's say that they have um, uh, an envelope with $5,000 in it. It could be that the officer believes that it may be a situation involving drugs, what have you. Maybe there is an actual offense uh, or there are drugs in the vehicle. At any rate, the officer then can seize. And so there's two words, forfeiture and seizure. So the officer can conduct a seizure of that money. It then goes to court. Now, interestingly, there's there's two trials. There is the the criminal trial, if there is one. And then there is, a, if you want to call it, a trial for the property where it's the, the, the property is sort of the, the defendant, if you will. <laughs> and it's a civil case. 
And so what happens is uh, it's determined whether the state will keep that property. And if it does, then it's called forfeiture. That, hmm. that property then is forfeited to the state and the state will do what it does with it, um, probably put it up for auction. Or if it's money, it goes into the, in North Dakota anyway, it goes into the fund of the agency that seized it. Now, the thing that blew my mind that really got me interested in wanting to reform it is that for your property to be seized, there needs to be a reasonable cause, whatever it might be. However, for it to be forfeited, you don't need to be found guilty, which is crazy to me. Worse than that, you, you don't even have to be charged. So the officer could have thought, hey, I think there might be something going on here. I'm going to seize this. And then it's in the court system. There may not be enough to charge you. There may, and there certainly may not be enough to convict you, but your property could still be forfeited. And so you have to go to court to argue that you deserve to get your property back. So when you go to court to argue you deserve to get your property back, does that happen? So you talked a little bit about um, the property has its own trial. The property becomes a defendant. Mm -hmm. Is that the time that you go to yes. court? Okay. Yep. To say, hey, this property belongs to me. You can't, you know, it's not right for you to take it. Um, and you can think of many, I mean, there have been many circumstances where someone was carrying, for whatever reason, a large amount of money, moving, uh, you know, they didn't put all their money in a bank, they keep it at home and they're moving, or they're bringing money to a relative, whatever it might be. And it's not actually drug money, but it's seized and forfeited. And there are many of many cases like that around the United States. But say, for instance, someone has borrowed their grandma's car, and they are conducting some drug transaction, right? The car gets forfeited. And grandma doesn't have the right as a third party to say, wait a minute, that's not his car, that's my car. Nope, it's forfeited unless you fight for it. Do you think that um, the majority of the time the civil asset forfeiture is a legitimate thing? Or how many abuses do you think are actually happening in North Dakota? Well, that's a very good question um, because we have to define abuses. And so if by abuse we mean is there an intentional seizure by law enforcement with the intent to keep property, even though it's not correlated with criminal activity, I think that happens extremely infrequently, maybe not at all. Hmm. But the system in itself is a type of abuse. What we find is that a lot of the forfeitures are of lower value. So people, are, what they're doing is they're just not responding to the court. They're just letting the court keep it. They're not fighting for it because to fight for it may be more costly than the actual value. Reports are and records are showing that that there's a tremendous number of forfeitures. I I don't have the numbers off the top of my head as I did when I was um, over these past few years when I've been testifying, but something on the order of like fifty percent mm -hmm. are under a thousand dollars and and seventy five percent are under two thousand dollars. I mean, really, you can how much money are you going to spend to get property back that has a value less than a thousand dollars? And so it's just forfeited in that sense. They don't even fight for it. So the majority of our listeners are egg producers around mm -hmm. our state. And have you seen ways that um, it has been abused or, or just the system itself has taken advantage of agriculture producers? And um, if not, how are some ways you think that it, it could potentially be a detriment to our egg producers? Right. The I mean, the egg producers are going to fall into the category of all all citizens of the state. So it, it can happen to anybody. You know, if you're traveling uh, on a county road and, and, and you happen to, you know, have money uh, in the car. But more specifically, I think there was a case um, south of south of Jamestown, right? And I and I, I, I spoke in detail with the person who was involved, but they had purchased a 
a um, and maybe you remember the details more than I. It was a payloader, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, and but it was believed that perhaps that payloader was stolen. What happened is that that was seized. I think it was improperly seized. Mm-hmm. So see, my problem is is not with law enforcement as much as it is with the court system and and the, the whole process. Because if if law enforcement seizes, okay, fine. It's not a problem if it's given back to the person when they're not found guilty. I don't have a problem with that. It's the forfeiture side, not the seizure side. But in this particular case, it was improperly seized. They took the payloader and then they got rid of the payloader to where we don't know. So there was some weird shady stuff in there that there was a private citizen bought a payloader. There's a question, is it stolen? Is it not stolen? Well, uh, maybe you should figure that out before you take it, confiscate it and, and seize it from that owner from that farmer and then if when you dispose of it <laughs> we should know who got it yeah um and i think how it turned out with some pressure applied is that uh, that gentleman finally after fighting in court against the state against the attorney general's office and we did i wrote a letter in, uh, mm-hmm. on his behalf um, put pressure on and he did get get money back but had to trem- uh, spend a tremendous amount of his own money yeah. to fight in the courts for something that was right. So it can happen to, to anybody in the state. It's interesting, too, to think of the potential implications for livestock. And we have instances of animal abuse charges, and those animals get seized. And obviously, we have we have things in place, but without a transparent system or, or people that are willing to follow the procedure, it's obviously very problematic. Yeah, it's and, and the, the livestock aspect is, is very complicated, convoluted, problematic. But don't forget, it's, um, it can also be, you know, the, the trailer and, and yeah. the and the vehicles hmm. uh, transporting, if, if there's any transporting going on. And so uh, it's, it's, it's a it's a very significant issue. Now, I attempted to transform, reform civil asset forfeiture in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a new concept. I, I tell you, most people I found like myself, I thought maybe I was just the only ignorant one. It turns out <laughs> that I think a lot of people didn't know what it was in the legislature. Yeah. And it failed in 2017 with, uh, with I mean, near, nearly nobody voted on it, but brought it back in 2019. Why do you think it failed? Sorry to interrupt you, but sure. why, it was, why do you think it failed? I think that it was uh, seen as a, I, I shouldn't say almost nobody voted for it. It, it passed in the House just barely, but then on the Senate side, okay. it failed uh, zero to 46. Okay. And the reason is that I was able to make my case on the House side, but on the Senate side, then it became a simple sort of this is anti-law enforcement okay it, it that's just it didn't get any more in, in depth than that it's yeah. like, this bill law enforcement doesn't like it it's anti-law enforcement if you vote for it you're anti-law enforcement and so it, it just got demolished and so um then it was brought back uh in 2019 and um, very, I guess very quickly, I should tell you, there's three components, three major components to reforming civil asset forfeiture. Number one is that it's only done upon conviction. So you go ahead and mm-hmm. seize it. If the person isn't charged, isn't convicted, they should get their stuff back automatically. They shouldn't have to fight for it in court. That's the first thing. The second thing is that when there is a forfeiture, the money should go to a neutral fund. Now, again, I'm not, and I never have accused North Dakota law enforcement of not doing things properly, but it has been documented in other states where civil asset forfeiture is used significantly to augment their revenues. 
Because if the state is cutting back a little bit, you know, times are tough. How do we find more revenue? Well, do more civil asset forfeiture. Well, that's a perverse incentive to say, well, you know, if we do this, we're going to get more money. We need more money. We're going to do more of this. It's not good for citizens. So there should be a neutral fund. The third thing is there needs to be transparency and reporting, which is always good for any government organization or, or policy. And so in 2019, I had a bill. It was a really good bill. I worked with the Institute for Justice on it, and it was solid. North Dakota, uh, prior to 2019, was ranked F um, by Institute of Justice. They ranked all the states for civil asset forfeiture. Massachusetts and North Dakota were the only states with an F wow. rating. And interestingly, after the 2019 session, my bill was amended, tremendously amended, and then it was passed by the House and then the Senate. Because the amendments watered it down and made it just a shell of what it originally was, Institute for Justice came out a few months ago, and North Dakota still had an F rating. <laughs> so it wasn't, uh, you know, they called it reform. And, and it's such an interesting story. I could talk an hour just on how that passed, but it was going to fail. But then the people that were opposed to it sort of figured out that if we don't pass something, Becker and the people that really want reform are going to put it on the ballot. As, a, as an initiated measure, and it will pass. I mean, how many North Dakota right. citizens are going to vote against the idea that they keep their property if they're not convicted? Nobody. I mean, it'll pass in yeah. flying colors. So they did pass in a, a severely amended bill, which really was to thwart the, the idea that it's going to go to initiated measure. Because now if a person tries to go to initiated measure, well, you can say, hey, we just passed reform give it a chance. Well, that's that's a winning message. So the perception that might exist out there that you want to completely eliminate civil asset forfeiture isn't true. Is that correct? Because I guess the question is, what do you do with property that legitimately comes from criminal activity? Yep. You're talking about your three-pronged approach mm -hmm. instead? Okay. Yes. So um, yes, I am against all civil asset forfeiture. But, but what that means is that first of the three prongs is that they can do it upon conviction. At that point, it doesn't become civil asset forfeiture, it becomes criminal asset forfeiture. I see. Now, okay. if we say, yes, it's still going to be done in civil courts, but it still can only be done based on a conviction, then yes, I'm still in favor of it. I guess the easier way to explain it would be to say, yes, I'm in favor of it, so long as there's a conviction. Mm -hmm. And it goes to a neutral fund, and there's mm -hmm. transparency. <laughs> or it gets turned from uh, civil asset forfeiture into criminal yes. asset forfeiture. Exactly yes. right. Okay. You said that they severely amended your bill in the 2019 session, and... It did seem like it did have some more transparency. Is that true? What have you thought about the result that came out of that? Have you seen anything good come out of it? So the, of the three prongs, it sort of moved, seemed like it moved to requiring a conviction, but then they said, or beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, that's okay. something that's only used in criminal right. uh, offenses, but they used it in civil asset forfeiture. Mm. So it doesn't even belong there. What it did is it kind of convoluted things so that if it was really important to law enforcement or the courts, they don't need the conviction. They can just say, hey, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, the judge thinks this. So it wasn't really there. The neutral fund, instead of going to the general fund, uh, like I wanted it to, it what it did is it went to the city or the county in a separate fund. And then law enforcement could just say, hey, apply to the city or county. Hey, we want these funds. So so it's kind it was of a kind fake of like, thing. It's a fake. It's a so fake thing. So instead of going to the police department, it went to the county, but the police department can still access right, it. So it's right, kind of fake. Okay. And then the third thing was reporting. The problem with it is that it was not uh, disaggregated, and so you hmm. you couldn't. And that was my yeah. I, my concern was, hey, you're we're not going to be able to find anything out if you can't separate things. 
uh, individually, you can't make an assessment. You can't really do the analysis of it to see what's going on in which um, um, political subdivision, so on and so forth. Now, I will say that as much as I hated that amended bill, maybe it was a step in the right direction. It still got an F by Mm -hmm. Institute for Justice. But now what we have in this session and past the House is a, a bill. I brought up another bill. Um, that was going to try and improve on these things pretty substantially. Not everything I wanted, but I know that I'm not going to get everything I want. But it definitely improved on the reporting, and it was going to disaggregate everything. We're going to know everything. It was going to be full transparency. So the problem is that some folks are are not thrilled with me. You know, I I think it's more about personalities sometimes because I'm a, a strong advocate for civil liberties. I'm a strong advocate for decreased spending which means that most of the agencies are not <laughs> fond of me because every all the agencies want more money and the law enforcement lobby a lot of times are not in favor of the bills that I think are good for the citizens of North Dakota. Confidential informant reform I got passed. They didn't like that. Um, requiring a warrant to use drones for s- surveillance on private citizens. Mm-hmm. I got that passed. They didn't like that. I think what happened is it was an, uh, maybe a look at like, wow, this is a Becker bill. We don't like it. But fortunately, Representative Satram had a bill in as well. And my thought was, you know what, there there seemed to be a strong propensity to want to pass Satram's bill. And so uh, Representative Satram was good enough to work with me. Uh, the Attorney General's office uh, was good enough to work with us as well. A lot of the things that were important to me in my bill got put into Satram's bill. Mm-hmm. It passed the House. I think it's going to do well. I don't know how you've been following what happened in the Senate. The committee, it got a due pass out of committee, okay. and it's still waiting for floor action. Okay. So, you know, in the end, I, I think last session as the um, most basic building block to what's being done this session, at least we're going to get good reporting. That's one step. We still don't have the other two taken care of. But when you have the transparency and the reporting, at least now there's hope to recognize what's going on, where, how, when, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. A couple of the components of of what your initial um, 1261 did that you included in, Sat- in Representative Satram's bill um, included things like um, the disposition of the crime, correct? Yes. And where did the property go? Just things, things like that. So exactly. And will this list be accessible to the public, or is it just something that we have to request from the attorney general's office? Or it'll come out in uh, the attorney general, based on last session's bill, is required to put out an annual report. Based on this session's bill, that report will include. And now it may be an appendix on his report, but all of the disaggregated information. Okay. So it's, it's it, for instance, you can get his report just by going online uh, to the Attorney General's website. You can see the report, but the way we want it now should be available to the public. I think I think it's in November that it comes out. So okay. next November, we should see what happened with civil asset forfeiture in the state. So one interesting component on the bottom of the bill is that $50, civil asset forfeitures of $50 or less do not need to be included. Um, is this just something that the attorney general wanted or do you think, what do you think about that? <laughs> That's, uh, it is, it, it's something that um, they thought was not worth the time and effort to put it okay. in the report and include it. My position was, I agree with you, it's not worth the time and effort, so let's not seize it. If it's not worth reporting, then it's not worth seizing. <laughs> it's not worth taking, yeah. If there's a drug dealer that's that's doing their $10,000 buys or sales or whatever, and you've got, you've got I don't know, a whatever it is, and it's worth $32, 
by taking that, you are not going to change this drug dealer's behavior. Mm. Let's just agree, agree, $50 isn't worth it. Don't seize it. Well, they didn't like that part, but um, I'm trying to remember how it got put into Satram's bill. I think it was there from the beginning. It must have been something that the attorney general Well, yes, the the it. attorney general uh, asked, but, but but I think we amended it. Okay. Um, yeah, we did, honestly, uh, written report. So it's not required to be in the report, I see, but the what we did to try and find a balance is that the state's attorney may establish a minimum value okay. for seizure. I so see. it was kind of, we gave the attorney general what he wanted. I don't want it, you know, whereas he's saying, I don't want to bother with things under 50 bucks, but we are saying, keep it local, right? Any state's attorney can say, we aren't going to seize anything below $50. But most importantly, the state's attorney could say, we don't want to seize anything under, under uh, $300. Hmm. And there's an interesting thing too with vehicles. Uh, I think in my bill, I had a vehicle for that had a value of less than a thousand or I forget what it was, 2000 something. But the thing is when law enforcement seizes a vehicle that has to be put in storage. Mm. Now, if it's a vehicle that is worth a thousand bucks, but while you're waiting for the forfeiture case, it, well, the cost of storage. So the county will say is putting it in storage to some, maybe say towing storage facility. It goes through, maybe it's four months later. Well, your storage bill is, I don't know, let's just say 4,000 bucks. Well, the mm-hmm. car is only worth a thousand. Mm-hmm. So doing this, doing that seizure cost hmm. the citizens of that county 3,000 bucks. You know, so we have to use some common sense here. So this, the, what was amended in this Atrum's bill affords the state's attorneys to uh, make that decision. Okay. Awesome. What do you see looking forward if we were to look at North Dakota 10 years from now, where would you hope that we would be? Is there a state that you would model us after for civil asset forfeiture? Or would you just see a a completed three-prong approach to this issue? Or or where would you see us? Yeah, I think I'm forgetting uh, offhand which of the states have particularly good. For some reason, New Mexico is coming to mind. But I think if we go back and and hit those other two prongs again, it's easy enough to do. It's just whether the legislators have the stomach to do it. Um, I mean, there's really nothing wrong with saying, Hey, let's move the money to the general fund. And there's nothing wrong with, I mean, again, I think 99.9% of citizens would say it's a good idea that the state gives a citizen their property back if they're not convicted. So that would just make sense. Maybe that's something for next session to try again. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Representative Becker. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your session. Thank you. And thank you for all your hard work on this issue. I know it's really important to our members and other egg producers out there and North Dakota as a whole. So yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Keep up your good fight. You're doing good work. Thank you so much. And this has been another episode of Straight Talk with NDFB. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on social media or encourage people to go to ndfb.org to check out all the episodes. This is Seth Estenson. Thanks for listening.